0: Luke 17. This is the tail end. We're going to look at 10 verses today. That's it. It's the tail end of this really long section that began in chapter 12. It's basically a sermon that's taken place over multiple weeks in multiple locations. Jesus keeps hammering the same theme. What does it look like to follow him? What does it look like? To be a Christian and there, uh, it begins in chapter 12, verse 1, with Jesus saying, Be on your guard, watch out, be aware of the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Then a few verses down, he says, Be aware, watch out for greed. And so a lot of what happens between chapter 12 and what we're going to look at today in 17 is Jesus working off of those negatives, those warnings. And he really uses the Pharisees as an example of what we don't want to be. They're hypocrites. And he's saying, Don't act like them. They say they love God and they love people, but look how they treat people. They pick people, they pick Sabbath regulations over healing people. They they elbow people out to try to find the best seats in the synagogue. They love money and are greedy. And so, all these different negatives. But Jesus also spends a lot of time on the positives, the counter virtues there, I guess you can say. Cultivate authenticity. Recognize Jesus as the center of your life and live out of that. Don't say one thing and do another. Cultivate trust, which will allow you to be generous uh, with your resources. So everything that we've been looking at really since the beginning of September, you can fit under one of those umbrellas, either the negative warnings or the positive virtues. And today we're going to look at the tail end of this sermon. Jesus says to his disciples, now remember there's thousands of people following Jesus and it's a mixed crowd. So when he's talking to his disciples, he's also talking to the Pharisees. When he's talking to people who are interested He's also talking to people who are, who are hostile. It's a, a mixed bag there. Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to, stu- to stumble. So watch yourself. There's that same phrase again that we saw at the beginning of chapter 12. So this sermon begins and ends with this warning. So watch yourselves. If your brother or your sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you, saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Jesus replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? The implied answer is no. Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. So again, you have this idea, beginning and the ending, watch. Beginning, we're watching the Pharisees, hypocrisy, greed, end. He says, watch yourself. Don't be a stumbling block. And he gives this picture. He says, you don't, it, it would be better for you to have a millstone. This is a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than to make it difficult for one of these little ones, one of my followers, to continue following me. You know what happens if that thing's tied around your neck and you're thrown in the ocean? What happens? You die. That's what he's saying. It would be better for you to be dead. Dead than to get in the way of somebody following me. He said, it's, that's how serious he is. He's ruthless when it comes to things that get in the way. Cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Cut off your foot if it causes you to sin. Pluck out your eye if it causes you to sin. It'd be better for you to jump into the sea with one of those things around your neck and die than to cause one of these little ones to, to, to make it difficult for them. To follow me. Ruthless when it comes to things that get in the way. That's what a stumbling block is. Think, literally, you're following Jesus, walking after him, and somebody sets a trap. Or puts an obstacle on the path. And you, you trip over it. cause you to lose your balance and lose your way. And he's saying, you don't want to do that. The Pharisees were doing that. And he's saying, you don't, you don't want to do that. And so, when I hear that, and I'm thinking, alright, it'd be better for me to be dead than to do that. Then what... What are the things that cause people to stumble so I cannot do those things? And so we'll spend a few minutes looking at that. Hypocrisy's one, greed's one, that's what we've been looking at for six weeks. Those things can cause people to stumble. I want I want you thinking primarily within the body of Christ. He's talking about Christians causing other Christians to stumble. Absolutely, we've got responsibility to people outside the faith, and most of these same things apply. But the context here, he's saying to his disciples. Don't cause another one of these little ones, another disciple, to stumble. So he's really talking about relationships within the body. Again, a lot of this stuff does apply outside, but what he's speaking to here is relationships within the body. So what are the things that we can do that can cause each other to stumble? And hypocrisy is one of those things. If you say one thing and do another, it can cause other people to stumble. To stumble. If I stand up here every week and say, this is how you should live, and you should be kind, you should be compassionate, and you should be generous, and then you look at my life and say, you're not kind, and you're not compassionate, and you're not generous, that may make it difficult for you. That may be a stumbling block for you. If I say, God loves the poor, Jesus stands with the poor, uh, God is generous, and so we should be, and then you look at my life and you don't see any of those things, you see me chasing after stuff, that could become a stumbling block for you. And the same thing is true in your life, the people that you have influence with. If they see that hypocrisy or greed, that can get in the way. Another one I think may be more common. Most of us, we, we recognize hypocrisy and greed as wicked, and so we tend to steer away from that. Another one I think that, that's pretty common, particularly um, parent to child and friend to friend, I think you can see these, this dynamic at play, is opposing the will of God in the life of somebody that we love. Now, we don't say... We're opposing the will of God in the life of somebody we love, but a lot of times that it, things can play out that way. You see an example in Matthew 16. Peter, this incredible revelation. Jesus says, "Who am I?" Peter says, "You're the Christ." And Jesus says, "Yes, you are. Yes, that is true." And then Jesus says, "And I'm going to have to suffer and die." And Peter immediately comes back and says, "No, that's not going to happen. That's we're not. That's not going to happen. You're the Messiah. You're too important. There's too much." God loves you too much. You've got too big of a job to do. You're not going to die. And you see Jesus' response there, there on the screen. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You're a stumbling block to me. It's the same word that we just saw in Luke 17. You're getting in the way. Peter, you're making it more difficult for me to follow Jesus. You're making it more difficult for me to be faithful to what God is calling me to do. Peter's motivation was probably noble. Again, he recognizes you're the Messiah. That means you have a massive responsibility. It also means you're God's most favorite person on the planet. There's no way you're going to suffer and die. God wouldn't let that happen to you? That's it. No. And I, Peter loves Jesus. I'm sure there's some affection there as well. And he's saying this? No. Again, his motives, his intentions are all good. But he's opposing the work of God in Jesus' life. The Father's plan was for Jesus to suffer and die, and Peter is opposing that. See, the same thing in Acts 20. Paul says he's compelled by the Holy Spirit. He knows he's supposed to go to Jerusalem, and when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer many things. And then in Acts 21, he's with a a group, a church group, other believers, and it says, through the Spirit, they recognize that Paul's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to suffer, and the Bible says, I think it's in verse 4, through the Spirit, they urge him not to go to Jerusalem. So they have this revelation from God, Paul's going to suffer in Jerusalem, and their immediate response is, no way. Paul, you can't go. You're the most important missionary we've got. You've started more churches than anybody ever. You can't go if it's going to hinder your work. You can't go if they're going to arrest you and possibly kill you. You've got your job, your responsibility is too big. Paul knows, God has told him, you've got to go to Jerusalem. Paul already knows that, and these people who love him with the best of intention are opposing the work of God in his life. You see that? That same thing can happen to us. Again, a classic example is when you turn, whatever, 18, 20, 22, and you say to your parents, this is what I'm going to go do, and your parents who love you with the best of intentions are like, no, that's a terrible idea. You need a backup plan. Have you thought about all of these other things? No, I really feel like this is what God is calling me to, and there could be that kind of that tension there with the best of intentions that parental instinct that we have when somebody that we love we see a path that may lead to suffering and difficulty and hardship, our instinct is to step in. Most of us are more willing to go through that ourselves than to watch somebody we love go through that, and so we we tend to step in and try to cut that off, try to persuade or argue or even manipulate people out of that level of obedience. That's opposing the will of God in somebody else's life. It makes it very difficult when somebody you love is saying something like that. It makes it harder. That's a stumbling block. It's harder for me to be faithful when people I love are saying don't. Even with the best of intentions, when they're saying don't. Does that mean every wild idea somebody you love have, you have to support 100%? No. But what it does mean is pause time out, when somebody tells you something and you can already see this might not end well, you need to take a second and say, God, is this, is this what you've got for them? The father's plan for Jesus included suffering. The father's plan for Paul included suffering. Very well could be that the father's plan for your children or your best friend may include suffering. And we have to figure out how to say, all right, I don't like what I'm hearing. I love you. I'm going to I just need to sit with this and ask the Lord, what are you saying to them? And what does it look like for me to support your work in their life? It may be that they're off. Absolutely. They may they may have a wild hair and you need to pull it out. But it may not be that at all. And so we've got to figure out that sometimes loving somebody doesn't mean protecting them from suffering. It means saying to them, it's what the, this church should have said to Paul, is you're going to suffer and we hate it because we love you. And we're going to be praying for you that you would endure. It's not trying to get in his way. Again, hard word. Many of you have influence either with your own children, you have influence with your friends, you've got influ- that type of spiritual influence. You want to make sure that you're stewarding that well and not just immediately assuming if this looks like it's going to be difficult it's not from the Lord. Last one, which I think is even more common. We don't have a ton of time for this, so I'll just set it up and you can do your own research. Romans 14, 1 through fifteen thirteen, Paul talks about these things. It's disputable matters is what it says in the NIV. So you've got Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. and They're trying to figure out how to live together and it's, it's combustible. They all agree Jesus is the Lord. That's not the issue. What they don't agree is what we should be eating when we sit down together. Jewish Christians are saying, we've got generations, hundreds of years of saying, here's the menu. Everything's got to be kosher. And now we've got these new Gentile Christians, they're eating anything. And we can't, I I can't do that. We have generations that say, Saturday is the Sabbath, and here's what you do on Saturdays. And now y'all are saying, Sunday is the holy day, the day of the Lord. And you don't honor any of these regulations from the Old Testament. It's causing all, again, they don't have, their issues are not the big things. It's not who Jesus is. It's not where their faith is. Their issues are how do we live together as Jew and Gentile Christians. And it's causing all kinds of problems. And so what, and Paul's got to weigh in and say, here's here's how y'all need to start treating each other. Those of you who have a, quote, weak conscience, that is those of you who are concerned about what you eat. Paul says you can eat whatever you want, but for some people they can't. Their conscience won't allow them to eat meat. It won't allow them to eat certain meat. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 8. Or it won't allow them to not keep the Sabbath on Saturday. Their conscience won't let them do that. He says to those people, listen, you can't condemn someone who's okay with eating meat. You can't condemn someone who's okay For working on Saturday and worshipping on Sunday. And what he says to the quote strong. Whose consciences are clear about those things. Is you can't look down on the weak. He doesn't tell them you'll have to agree about everything. What he says is strong people don't encourage weak people to violate their conscience. Strong and weak for us are loaded terms. So I don't want you to hear that in better, worse Connotations. That's not what's going on. It's how sensitive your conscience is. So what he's saying is those of you who have a sensitive conscience, don't, don't violate it. Don't worry about what other people are doing. It's okay. And those of you whose conscience is not as sensitive, don't push people to violate their conscience. Don't tell them it's okay for them if it's not okay for them. Anything that's not done in faith is a sin. Don't push somebody to sin. Don't allow your freedom, strong person, to tear to destroy a son or daughter of God. He says that in Romans 14. Your freedom is really important, but it's not most important. Most important is love. It's building one another up. Now for us, meat, what we eat, that doesn't really matter. Days of the week doesn't really matter, but we, there are gray areas for us. Some of you were raised and believe with all of your heart, Christians should never drink a drop of alcohol. And some of you don't think that at all. You love beer with your pizza, margaritas with your nachos, that type of stuff. Wine all the time. Some of you are like, you do those things. <laughs> and for you, it's, it's about how much. Where's the line when I'm drunk or those types of things. But alcohol, you don't, it's, it's, more, it's neutral to you. Your conscience is not sensitive in that way. Don't hear that. That's not criticism. I don't know how else to label those things. It's strong and weak or it's sensitive conscience and a not sensitive conscience. If you can come up with better terms, you can let me know later. But that, it's that idea. Your conscience, is not, your conscience is clear when it comes to drinking alcohol. And that can cause problems. Churches have split over those things. Tattoos. Churches, you know, there's some of you who come from a world that says your body is a temple, so don't draw on it. And there are others of you who come and say, I'm a blank canvas. And that's what what do we do? For some of you, it's language. Some of you are. Cussers. Varying degrees, substitute, first letter, all kinds of spellers, some of you are just flagrant cussers. Others of you are mature. I'm joking. I don't know. I'm joking. I, you know, all of that stuff, there's gray areas. And when I'm saying gray, some of you are going, it's not gray. That makes you someone with a sensitive conscience. I'm t- like, all of that stuff is gray in a lot of ways. And so how do we live together? We're not disagreeing over Jesus is Lord. We're disagreeing over what we order with our meal. And so those types of things, what Paul says is, y'all don't have to agree. You don't have to agree on everything. But those of you whose conscience is clear about these matters, don't you dare push someone whose conscience is sensitive to violate it. That's a stumbling block. If you're encouraging someone to do something that they can't do in faith, like that's not good, that's not growth for them, it's sin for them, don't do that. And those of you who have a sensitive conscience, don't you dare condemn someone who God has justified. All that does is bring division in the body. So you may think in your own life, are there areas, those gray areas, where do you stand? And are you doing things in those gray areas that maybe are causing other people To stumble. It doesn't mean you can never do those things. It just means be aware of the situation that you're in. Be aware of the people that you're with. And be willing to forego your freedom for the sake of love. Be willing to forego your judgment for the sake of love as well. Verse 3. So watch yourselves. Looking back, watch yourselves. You don't want to be a stumbling block. Because you don't want a millstone around your neck. And now looking forward, watch yourself as well. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. If they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. So we don't want to be a stumbling block to others. And we also don't want to stumble over the sin that other people commit against us. We want to watch out both ways. I want to watch out for my behavior towards you. And I want to watch out with my response towards you. So what Jesus says is rebuke, that is, speak strongly against. you got to let somebody know. Does that mean every time? Now, at nine, I use myself as an example. And people, when I was leaving, were like, oh, we're so sorry. We're thi-. like, this is all hypothetical. <laughs> so don't, I'm, it's good. That's my, I, it's good. So, so let's say I, I have a microphone and I talk for half an hour every week. I probably just offended some of you about two minutes ago. And so I, I, I do that. I'm going to disappoint. I'm going to forget your name. I'm not going to remember your kid's birthday. Like something's going to happen and it's going to disrupt. Does that mean every time that happens, you've got to come to me and rebuke me and say, you did this or you didn't do this? No. First Peter four, eight says, love one another deeply for love covers over. A multitude of sins. So the idea is, I love you and you love me. And that love should cover over a lot of those misunderstandings and sin. But occasionally, there will be a breach that's so significant, you've got to come to me. That's when confrontation is necessary. That's when this rebuke comes in. Daniel's got to be willing to come to me at some point and said, Well, when you said this or you didn't do this, it caused me to pull back from you. And so that's really the trigger. If the, the action causes you to pull back relationally, then you've got to bring it up. Because remember, this is all body of Christ stuff. Jesus' desire is for us to function fully as uh, brothers and sisters. And if we're pulling away from each other, we can't do that. So there's a lot of things we never need to bring up because love covers over a multitude of sins. But occasionally there are things we do need to bring up. And it's the responsibility of the offended party. It's Daniel's responsibility to come to me. I don't know. So he's got to come to me. He's not coming. to He's not rebuking me to be right. He's rebuking me to initiate reconciliation. That's his step back towards me. He's not confronting me to win an argument. He's confronting me to restore a relationship. You got that? And my responsibility when he comes to me is then to repent. Oh, man, I had, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I had a bad day. I'm a jerk. Whatever. I want to do better. Help me do better with this. And then he, then the, Jesus says, if I repent, Daniel has to forgive me. If I forget his name every Sunday, he has to forgive me every Sunday. And then wear a name tag. Those are the things that we need to figure that out. Every time I repent, he's supposed to forgive me. So the question becomes, well, what if I don't repent? Does he still have to forgive me? There's a whole group of people that say, relationally, if there's no repentance, there doesn't need to be forgiveness. God forgives people who repent, Acts 3.19, and we're to forgive like God, Ephesians 4.32. So if God demands repentance, shouldn't we as well? Not necessarily in a judgmental way, but in a way that says, this is this is what love looks like. I'm not gonna. It's um, they call it the unfor, unconditional forgiveness crowd. That's not it's not what God does, and so it's not what we do. It's I, I disagree. You don't have to agree with me, but I disagree with that. I think we're to forgive whether or not repentance is evidenced or not. To me, if if Daniel has to wait for me to repent before he forgives me, that puts him in judgment over me. He somehow has to figure out what's going on in my heart. God can see my heart. And so he knows. Daniel can't. And so then he has to create some bar that says, well, I'll know you've repented when what? And that puts him in a position of judgment over me. Jesus and Stephen both forgive people who don't repent. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus says on the cross, Stephen says from a pit, when both of them are being killed, crucified and stoned, respectively. Non-repentant crowds, both of them Receive forgiveness from Peter, oh, excuse me, from Stephen and from Jesus, Matthew 614 talks about forgiving, doesn't say anything about repentance. We're told to love our neighbors and we're told to love our enemies. I think it's difficult to do if you haven't forgiven somebody. So for me, I don 't think Jesus is setting up a condition in saying forgiveness demands repentance. I think he's setting up a demand, but it's on the other side. He's saying, if he repents, you have to forgive. Which is hard when he says seven times in the same day. Like, have I, seven times, I'm doing the same thing seven times. That picture is limitless forgiveness. I'm doing the same thing, to, I'm sinning against Daniel the same time, in the same way, seven times in a day. And he has to forgive me every time I say, I repent. Not every time he believes me, every time I say it. That's a, that's a load for him to carry. So I don't think Jesus is saying you only forgive. If there's repentance, I think he's saying if there's repentance, you have to forgive. It's a different way of looking at it. Let me give you a a visual for this. I need two people. Yay. Everybody's favorite time. This is why none of you sit on the front row. So Brandon and Bo are in relationship. So here's your verse. Romans 12, 18 says, no touching, says, as far as, as much as it depends on you, Live at peace with one another. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. Here's what this looks like. So these guys are brothers in Christ. They're in good relationship with each other. Now, at times, Georgia Tech over here and Georgia over here, they can get at each other a little bit, but they love each other deeply, and love covers over a multitude of sins. But let's say Brandon tells Bo something as his pastor in confidence. And he says, here, this is an area where I'm struggling, and he shares with him. And then Brandon finds out that Bo has shared that with other people. Now that causes a breach in relationship. That's significant. He has Brandon shared something personal, and Bo, whatever Bo's motivation, he shared it with other people, and so that causes a breach. Brandon is the offended. Bo is the offending. So what God's desire is to reconcile them to one another as brothers, and so Brandon as the offended rebukes Bo, lets him know, hey, this is what you did. This is how it affects me. And he offers Bo forgiveness. Hopefully, what Bo does is then repent and then offer restitution. That's Zacchaeus in Luke 19. I'll pay back four times anybody I've cheated. I don't know necessarily what does restitution look like in this example. Who knows? But that's for, if you're the offending party, that could be out there for you. Not necessarily writing a check but something to kind of make it up in some ways. Repentance and restitution to show, hey, I'm a new person. It's not really making up. It's showing that I'm a new person. So ideally, now these guys are reconciled to one another. Again, y'all turn back around. Sometimes what happens, Brandon is the offended. His responsibility in reconciliation, remember, that's the goal. He's not rebuking Bo to be right. He's not rebuking rebuking Bo to get back at him. What he's saying is I value our relationship so much. I'm not willing to dismiss it. What you've done. I'm not willing to cut you off and I'm not willing to pretend everything's okay. When it's not what you did hurt me. It caused me to pull back from you. And so Brandon's responsibility as the offended is to do this, to rebuke and to forgive. Are they in relationship? No, because Bo's back is still to Brandon. Matthew 18 says, if Brandon tries this, and Bo is not willing to repent, then Brandon needs to bring somebody else. Not to bully Bo, but to confirm. Maybe what Bo says is, I don't think it's a big deal. Get over it, you're a baby. And then Brandon brings somebody else to say, no, Bo, this actually is a big deal. And you need to to own this, you need to recognize this. If that doesn't work, then Matthew 18 says, Brandon needs to bring me. Or he needs to bring his small group leader. Or he needs to bring an elder. To talk to Bo. And if that doesn't work, then Brandon can cut Bo off. He doesn't cut Bo off because he didn't forgive him. He disassociates with Bo because Bo won't repent. There's no relationship here. Brandon, as far as it depends on him, is living at peace with Bo. The issue is not from Brandon to Bo. The issue is from Bo back. Do you see that? So Bo has not repented even though Brandon has rebuked and forgiven. Does that make sense? Turn back around, please. So let's say... Bo comes to him and repents. And he says, man, I blew it. I said I shared your information with someone else. I thought they could help. And so I was trying to make a connection. I was trying to get more information so I could help you. I'm sorry. Bo has repented. Are they in relationship? No, because Brandon's back is to Bo. And so Brandon's responsibility, according to what we just read, when Bo comes to him and says this, Brandon doesn't have an option. He's got to forgive him. And then we've got relationship. This is the goal. The goal is not for anybody to be right or wrong. The goal is to restore a relationship. Thanks. So do you see that? Each person, whether... <laughs> my goodness. Whether you're <laughs> offended or you're offending... You have responsibility for your own heart. You're responsible for your response. You're not responsible for their response. You're responsible for your response. Paul says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So anyone you've offended, where I'm the offending party, living at peace means repentance and restitution. Where I've been offended, where I'm the hurt party, Living at peace with everyone looks like rebuke, which doesn't mean I'm coming at you. Here's my list of grievances. It means I care enough about this relationship that I'm not going to pretend this didn't happen. I'm not going to cut you off and I'm not going to walk away. I'm going to say you did this and it burned me. That's rebuke and I forgive you. That's my responsibility as the hurt and offended party. Do you see that? I think God treats us the same way. I actually think it's more of a reflection of God's heart to forgive first. Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2, right relationship. They're looking at each other. They fall in Genesis 3. Backs are turned. The end of Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 19 is a picture of God turning back to us, forgiving us through the death of Jesus, pursuing us. He doesn't sit there like this and wait for us to Come back. We looked at that in Luke 15. He's constantly pursuing people whose backs to, to him. He's saying to them, "Repent! You've fallen short of the glory of God. Repent! You need a savior. Repent! It's a you're you're headed for hell. Repent! Life is better with me." He's doing all of these things to try to get people to turn back for the sake of relationship. Salvation essentially is. Restored relationship. God has already turned back towards us, and he's waiting for us to turn back towards him. That's why there's no forgiveness without repentance. It's not because God is responding. It's because we can't receive forgiveness until we first repent. Think of Jesus' death as a check, and there's all this money in a bank account in heaven, and that money pays for every sin ever committed in human history. Who's pregnant? Anybody in here pregnant? Boom. Nice. Congratulations. I didn't know that. So, these babies, the sins that they have, the sins that they're going to commit are already paid for before they're even born. My opinion, Jesus' death atoned for all of our sins. That's 1 John 2.2. 2. His death was for our sins and the sins of the whole world. So, in heaven, there's a bank account. And there's enough money in there to cover every debt of every person who will ever live. All of the sins are already forgiven. This baby's sins are already forgiven. That baby's sins are already forgiven. The sins that Mark Chapman commits in 10 years are already forgiven. All we, when we repent, we're drawing on that bank account. That's what repentance is. It's saying, I don't want to pay. I recognize I have a debt and that you've paid for it. And I want to allow you, Jesus, to pay my debt for me. That's what repentance is. It accesses what's already been done for us. So when you forgive someone, even before they repent, even if they don't repent, you're actually emulating your Father in heaven. You're saying, I'm not going to hold you in judgment. doesn't mean what you did is right. It doesn't mean necessarily that we're ready to be best friends. What it means is I'm not going to hold you in judgment over this issue. And there's opportunity for us. As much as it depends on me, I'm going to live at peace with you. It's a responsibility of the other person to repent and then to work through what restitution looks like. Particularly if there's broken trust, that restitution may take a while. What does it look like to rebuild trust? Real quick, we're running out of time. The disciples hear this and they say, increase our faith. We can't do that. They get it. How in the world am I supposed to forgive the same person seven times? Which means limitless. How am I supposed to keep forgiving the same person for the same thing over and over and over again? Increase our faith. And what Jesus' response is, you don't need more. It only takes a little. Faith isn't some commodity. Faith is a relationship. It's trust. You've got enough. It only Because of who you're trusting, a little bit goes a long way. And then Jesus tells this parable to them. So they don't think they're heroes. There's a, a man and he's got one servant. So that one servant's got to do yard work and housework. The servant does the yard work and he comes in and it's dinner time. What's the master going to say? Sit down and eat? No, he's going to say, do your inside chores. It's not rude. It's a guy's job. Just like those of you who are employers. When your employee does what they're, when the, your employee works in the morning, they work hard. They come in after lunch. You don't usually send them home. You're just like, well, I've got to finish the day. That's your job. So the, what the employer is going to say is, do your job. So when the master's going to say, "Make me dinner and then you can have dinner." And the, the, the master's not thankless there. He can come across as much harsher than he is. What Jesus is saying is, because the servant does what he's supposed to do, that doesn't put the master in his debt. Again, because you do what you're supposed to do at work, that doesn't mean your boss is in your debt in any way. You've, you've done what you' were supposed to. And that's what the picture is here. If you forgive somebody, even seven times in a day, you're not a hero. That's not that's not extraordinary. You're just doing what you're expected to do. That's that's your job as someone who follows Jesus. He asks you to do it. He empowers you to do it. So it doesn't necessarily make us special because we do it. It just we should say what we've just done what was asked of us by our master. I don't hear that as harsh. I think what Jesus is trying to say there is sometimes when we forgive people, particularly if they've hurt us deeply, we can kind of, we can get a little prideful about that. And there could be this sense of maybe they owe us or maybe the sense that God owes us because we've done this great thing. And what Jesus is saying is that's not the case at all. You've only done what was asked of you. And you've only done actually what you've seen modeled for you by the Lord. So let's let's pray. We're running out of time, but I want to have enough time for y'all to respond. We're probably going to run about 3 minutes late if that's okay if you can give us an extra 3 minutes. I want to ask you two questions. I want you, kind of ask, I want you asking these two questions to the Lord actually is better. So just in your heart, quietly. God, I pray for us. I pray that you would speak to us now. I thank you that you're a forgiving and gracious God and you invite us into this economy of grace. There are times where we absolutely wish it was eye for an eye. But that's usually when somebody's wronged us. We are thrilled. That it's forgive when we're the ones who've wronged you or somebody else. So God, I pray that you'd help us all. Easy to talk about. Difficult to live out. For some of us, the prayer this morning is increase my faith. I can't forgive them. And I pray for those who are wrestling in that one spot. I can't do that. God, I pray for grace for them to trust you with that person this morning. God, we don't want to be stumbling blocks. We want to watch out. We don't want other people stumbling over us and we don't want to be stumbling over other people's sin. So help us now. Two questions. One, ask this. Lord, is there anybody that I've got my back to? You may have one person. You may have none. You may have twelve. I'm not asking if you're the offended or the offending either way you've got responsibility as much as it depends on you live at peace with everyone so with that name or two or three names then ask this God what do you want me to do about it what's my responsibility in this am I rebuking and forgiving am I repenting and making restitution God, I pray for everyone in this room. The student that Ann felt compelled to speak to. To every adult that we've got. Even thinking about Thanksgiving, God, I pray. As much as it depends on us, we live at peace with everybody. And you would show us what does that look like? What specifically are you asking us to do in these relationships? We don't want to be Pollyanna about things. We want to be led by your spirit in each one of these relationships. So help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can stand. We're going to have ministry teams here up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. But I would say specifically, if some names came to your mind, I would love for you to come forward and just say that. Sometimes getting it, saying it out loud kind of makes it more real than just thinking it in your head. So you guys can stand, and Bo will dismiss us in a couple of minutes.